Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. My name is Michael Weiss. I'm the Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, we are joined again uh, by my friend, uh, Christo Groziev, the international superstar investigative reporter who has unmasked more GRU officers probably than anybody else in history. And I had to have him on this week because the last two weeks have been a whirlwind of revelations and geopolitical tensions, uh, beginning with the disclosure that GRU Unit 29155 and operatives who were responsible for the poisoning of Sergei Skripal and Yulia Skripal in Salisbury blew up an ammunition depot in Czechia in 2014. This led to the expulsion of over a dozen Russian spies at the embassy in Prague, uh, the usual tit-for-tat accusations between a European state and Moscow. But now today, well, I guess yesterday and uh, the earlier part of last week, there was a disclosure that there was also GRU Unit 29155 activity in Bulgaria, apart from the poisoning of the Bulgarian arms dealer Emilian Gebrev, who Christo had to discuss the last time he was on the show. Now it seems that the GRU was blowing up weapons depots and also a forensic, set fire to a forensic institute that had amassed evidence trying to figure out who had blown up the weapons depot. So Christo, I mean, it's kind of extraordinary, isn't it? And I, I see that a lot of the things that you and I could only guess at two or three years ago, it's like puzzle pieces finally falling into place. Uh, we see the activity of this unit that you have studied very intensely for the last several years, really beginning in 2014, coinciding with the war in Ukraine, the invasion occupation of Crimea, and then the dirty war in Donbass. And now I think it's very clear what the motive in trying to Novichuk Mr. Gebrev was, right? He was selling arms or, or selling ammunition rather through Czechia to Ukraine to defend itself. And so they wanted to get rid of him and they wanted to get rid of the ammunition. Tell us what we've learned in the last fortnight and what you've managed to, to, to piece together based on you know these government decisions and announcements made by the Czech government and now the Bulgarian government and your own forensic spade work looking at telephony, flight records, the usual Bellingcat methodology for unmasking GRU operatives. Sure. Thanks for having me back, Michael. I'll call you Michael Weiss because you called me with a Russian accented last name, so I'll do the, the reverse to you. I'm not, I'm not Groziev, <laughs> okay. I'm Groziev. Fair okay. enough. <laughs> anyway, what we Fair found enough. is actually something we should have known from the very beginning, because uh, we always try to find very sophisticated motivation, but actually usually the default one is the correct. And in this particular case, well, we knew that Russia is at war. There was only one ongoing uh, hot war in Russia with Russia in 2014, it was with Ukraine. So of course, we should have assumed by default that all of their activities of the military intelligence of a special unit for destabilization subversions. All of these people are people with a military background. They fought wars in Chechnya, some of them even in Afghanistan. That's what they know, sabotage and, and uh, subversion. So we should have guessed it's something to do with Ukraine. And that's what it turned mm -hmm. out to be. Um, let me just correct you on one thing other than the accent, uh, which is that uh, uh, Emilian Gebrev, as we've now confirmed, did sell arms to Ukraine, and that was a crucial piece of arms from Ukraine's point of view, and that's munition rather than arms, but he didn't do it through the Czech Republic. It right. is quite possible that the GRU, uh, being often bumbling idiots, as we found out, might have misconstrued what was happening in the Czech storage facility as preparation for a shipment to Ukraine, but that's not what was happening there. So let's let's just break it down. What happened was, apparently, Emilian Gebrev was selling, first of all, weapons to Georgia at uh, during the war, or shortly after the war in 2008. The war never ended. It turned into a frozen conflict. And there were Bulgarian manufacturers, not only Emelian Gebrev, but others as well, 
who sold, um, continued to sell munition to Georgia. Now, a depot in Bulgaria was blown into the 2011. That's what we knew, but what we didn't know was that there was a sort of very similar modus operandi of whoever blew that depot to the ones that blew up in flames in 2015, which we had previously connected to the presence of uh, GRU officers from Unit 29155 in Bulgaria. So we have already have a string of three with a similar MO. Then what we, we had no idea was, in fact, the investigation into the remote detonated explosions that connected all these three uh, incidents was that the investigation to that had reached some level of conclusiveness. And all the evidence, the hard evidence, the paperwork, uh, the expertise documents that actually spoke to the existence of a remote control device at all three places uh, were being accumulated in a particular sort of forensic center of the police in Sofia, Bulgaria. Right. And that, that office exploded in flames in a fire on the 30th of May, 2015. Now, if we had known this before, because it was never made public, this fire, we would have immediately have an answer, had an answer to a question that was out there and hadn't been answered. Why was a trio of three of these GRU officers, the same that had poisoned Gebreth, lingering behind, behind in Bulgaria after he was poisoned a second time for three days? That didn't make sense. Their only goal was to go there and poison him again. They left on the 30th of May, 2015, via Serbia. You may remember that. Now we have the answer. I mean, they were there. They, they lingered. They, uh, they stuck around because apparently they had to destroy the evidence into the explosions, the previous explosions. So we have a lot of new answers, but all of them point to one thing. The jury does what the jury does, which is um, subversion, assassinations, and uh, all of that is, and sabotage, and all of that seems to be pre pre predominantly driven by interests of the military uh, of Russia and during a time of war, that becomes the predominant interest of, uh, of the GRU. But it's also, I mean, this highlights another aspect of, I think what you and I have discovered together is, you know, the, the, the unbelievably poor OPSEC or tradecraft that these guys use. I mean, uh, Mishkin and Chapiga, the two guys responsible for poisoning the uh, Skripals in Salisbury, traveled to Czechia. They used different passports once they were in country to go to this depot, right. but they, they landed right. in Czechia using the same cover names that they would later use, what is it, three years later? Yeah, to go to the UK and try to murder a, a defector in place, a, a former GRU colleague of theirs. I mean, this is unheard of. This is ridiculous that they would be this sloppy. What do you make of this? I mean, is this, you know... These are soldiers. I mean, they, they came from villages. They didn't get any real education outside the military. I mean, nothing wrong with soldiers, but that's what they... They know how to blow up things, right. yeah? And uh, when, when they leave traces behind, like in Bulgaria, linking them to an explosion... What do they do? They go back and blow it again, blow, blow up the evidence. So that's kind of the, the primal instinct for anything they do. Uh, but again, Russia is uh, very, very, in a way, innovative, but in other ways, very outdated bureaucracy. And uh, once somebody has a file, they have to stick to that file and that name, that password range, they have to stick to that. So it's, it's all has to be accounted for. So that, that old Soviet bureaucracy might have a, a play, might play a hand in why this is so obvious for some of us. Now, you know, one of the things that comes up constantly is everybody who gets attacked with Novichok, the military-grade nerve agent, seems to survive. The Skripal survived, uh, Navalny survived, although that was an FSB operation. Gebrev poisoned twice within the space of what, uh, you know, a few weeks. He survives too. I've seen it alleged 
in places that perhaps the goal here is not to murder them outright, but to sort of terrify them as a form of deterrence. In other words, sort of paralyze them with something that could very easily kill them, but essentially send a signal, stop doing what you're doing. So in Gebrev's case, stop selling arms to NATO countries or, you know, uh, in the case, I guess, of Georgia, just countries that are hostile to Russia that Russia's at war with. Um, what do you make of this? The, the fact that they have a, a, a really consistent failure record in actually killing the, the target of their Novichok schemes? Well, first of all, we don't know that they have a consistent uh, failure. We, we know that we see a consistent sample of failures. But when Novichok works, we're not going to see the, that it was Novichok. It's supposed to look like a heart attack, right? right? Or, or some body malfunction. We have actually linked some of the Novichok attempts to real deaths in Russia, mm-hmm. but that's more on the domestic side. But you're right, we've seen way too many examples of failure. But then again, can this be a sign of something else? Can it be a sign of an intimidation terror tactic? And I would guess no, just because hundreds, well, not hundreds, but dozens of experts in chemical weapons I've spoken to tell me consistently one thing. There's no way to know if you're going to kill the victim, if you apply Novichok, simply because there's no way to dose it properly. And because of that, you always go out there intending to kill. It might not work. Right. Yeah. It might leave the person uh, handicapped and incapacitated. Um, And then the end result might be a terror scare tactic. But you go in with an intent to kill because you can't plan to not kill. Right. And in Gebrev's case, I mean, he he was treated by Bulgarian military doctors who had served in war zones and and sort of understood the emergency procedure for administering atropine when it when it looks like somebody's been poisoned with something, right? So this this might account for his survival at least the first time around. Yeah, I mean th- these are well connected targets right. who end up getting proper treatment. Now Navalny ended up in Germany, and uh, and also as we heard from one of the confessions of his would be poisoners, the doctors in Russia treated him too well at the uh, on the tarmac. So right. it's all incidents and accidents that lead to survival as opposed to a plan. That's my guess at this point. Yeah. But like we're looking at an operation that took place in the case of the Czechia ammunition depot seven years ago. To my mind, it, it suggests that what unit 29155 has got up to is far more extensive, far more destructive than what we at present even know, right? I mean, th- these are the same operatives being recycled in or rotated in, I suppose, for, for similar sabotage and assassination campaigns. They have traveled all throughout Europe. I mean, to look at how they got, how every you know person part of the, the team for the Czechia operation arrived at their destination. They flew through what? Hungary. They flew through Slovakia, I believe, in one instance. Correct. Uh, and Austria, Austria. And, and uh, Switzerland. Right. So they, they've had their paw prints on almost every European state. Right. And this begs the question, what, what else have they got up to in these, in these other countries? You know, things that might have looked like accidents. I mean, you mentioned that people who die of heart attacks could, could have easily been poisoned with something. And we wouldn't know it because that's the, the, the signature nature of these poisons. Explosions, fires, you know, who knows what else? Car bombings that might look just you know accidental, but in hindsight now might look suspicious. What do you think? I mean, this is like a contemporary 21st century smirsh, except that they're they're operating in peacetime, at least with respect to Europe and the countries that that they seem to be running roughshod over. I mean, what can we expect, or what do you imagine that they might el- have also got up to that we don't even know about yet? Well, at this point, we can only apply pure statistics and mathematics. We see that on average, they take uh, between two and four trips before they accomplish some uh, special operation that they have. So that's the prep trips. 
And we also have another number, which is of all the trips that we have identified for this team. And it's a small team that, that is limited to under 30 people, just because they can't have too many people with all the, with, with the expertise, but also with the ability to contain information. So we've only identified events that answer the question of what they did for about 15% of the time, one five, that is, right? Right. So, so that means that we have 85% unexplained. And if you apply pure maths and if you just do it with three to one ratio, that means we, we don't know of at least 25 other incidents Jesus. across Europe, mostly, but not only because we see them taking trips to the Middle East. We're taking trips to, to China as well, believe it or not. There was only one operation there, but mostly Europe. So yeah, we, we have a lot unexplained in Greece, a lot unexplained in Ukraine in 2013, although we may have the explanation in what happened in 2014 there. We had a lot unexplained in Moldova, in the Netherlands, and in Germany. Mm. So uh, these are some of the markets I expect us to find in the next year or so, uh, what has been going on there. Because you must understand now that the reason why both the Czechs and the Bulgarians came up with this now is because first, after 2018, there was a new awareness of the active operation of a GRU black ops team across Europe. Uh, there was an awareness of the weakness of the, of the European visa, visa issuance system. And then the second event was our own disclosures that actually uh, embarrassed a lot of intelligence services in Europe and police officers into having to look at close cases, at cold cases, yeah, and see, yeah, was there some linkage? That's why I, I expect a lot of more, a lot more of these are going on in other European countries now, and we should hear from their local law enforcement in the, in the next year or so. Yeah, you may have seen the kind of febrile American news coverage of the fact that although the Biden administration mentioned the allegation of, you know, this unit 29155 possibly paying bounties to the Taliban and other Islamists in Afghanistan, and they said that they were going to take this up at a more sensitive diplomatic and military level with the Russian government rather than issue sanctions, there were no sanctions and therefore Four people had assumed that this was a, a fake news story. However, the CIA, according to the Washington Examiner, says that there were five pillars that led them to a moderate assessment, moderate confidence assessment that this actually was taking place. Uh, one of those pillars was the interrogation of Taliban detainees, which is probably the weakest of all five because you know, Taliban guys can lie all the time. But the others were financial streams that had been intercepted and human intelligence, which I read to be agents in the GRU who are talking to U.S. intelligence. And CIA stands by its guns, moderate confidence that this is taking place. The NSA has low confidence because they want the documentary proof. Yeah. They want a phone recording or some kind of email intercepts. This story didn't turn out to be fake news. It's just there's an interagency dispute about it. But now I'm looking at these disclosures from Czechia and Bulgaria. I'm trying to figure out, you just said it very plainly, you know, what upwards of 80% of what these guys got up to in terms of their travel around the world is unknown. Meaning we don't we, we have no sense of what operations they carried out successfully or abortively. What do you make of, of them possibly? You, you mentioned travel to the Middle East. What do you make of them suborning Taliban insurgents for the purposes of conducting operations against American and British soldiers in Afghanistan? I remember the last time we spoke about this, you were very skeptical about this story. Has, has your point of view changed at all? It has. I mean, I told you that we knew that they had interaction with um, Afghani with Afghanis, this unit, because we had identified yeah. them bringing Afghanis fake identities into Russia and hosting them for whatever right. reason. But what I'm more aware of now after the Czech and the Bulgarian conclusive evidence is that they would do something like that. They mm. would actually. I mean, it's, it's not that they did 
because we had evidence they did something with Afghanistan, but I didn't believe they would because of the reputation cost of, a, of, a, of a, and the blowback of a failure. But now that they've blown up in the center of Europe, depots with, with actual casualties and continued operating after that. Right. They killed a Czech citizen in that, that ammunition depot. Exactly. Two, two yeah, of them. Two, two of them. Yeah. Uh, just, just civilians. That, that answers the question. Would they actually do something to damage NATO forces in um, and uh, in Afghanistan, and the answer is yes, that has changed. Now, also what I have to throw into the picture is that we have been working on uh, trying to identify the um, the reason for their activity, very heightened activity in Tajikistan, which is uh, has the longest land border with Afghanistan. Right. And uh, we could almost say that they had a, a, a base there. I mean, they do have a base there. I don't know if you know, but the GRU have an actual base in Tajikistan, mm-hmm. not the Russian military. In addition to the Russian military, there's a GRU base in Dushanbe. Right. And this team has been going there repeatedly, at least uh, until 2014. And therefore, it is reasonable. I mean, it amounts to, it, it's logical that they would be using that base to interact with uh, Taliban and to, to go into Afghanistan if they need to. So, yeah, the answer is, I believe, I'm, I'm much more positive that this did happen than before. We still don't have the evidence, though. And I mean, the wildest sort of James Bondian aspect of this story, of course, is that their European headquarters of operations is in the, the French Alps. Yeah. Do you credit this with, with being true or is this kind of wildly speculative? No, it is true. Well, it, it may not be this nice uh, camp that has been painted by French and, and, and other media and the New York Times, but it is their hangout place. There's no question about that. We see all of them at one point or, point or another return to that base. Uh, or to that location, which is just on the border between, but just about an, an hour's drive from Geneva in uh, into France. We see them spend Christmas and New Year there as a group, right? I'm pretty sure they're coming up with fake reasons why they have to be there. They just get away from their families for a get-together. But yes, we've seen two Christmas, New Year periods that all seven or eight of them spent in that region. So it seems to be a sort of a, what do you call it, like a company retreat for them. What physically they have there, I I can't speak to that. Now, we're talking about these things in the present tense, but we should perhaps say that this is all past tense. I mean, these guys, it's about 30 people. You have unmasked most of them, right, at this point. There is no way these guys are getting on planes, even with false identities, given their biometrics and everything. So this unit is, is it safe to say it's essentially been rolled up? We're now just doing retroactive detection work to find out what they got up to in the past decade or so. Absolutely. So, I mean, not only do we have to assume that they're done, but we're we're tracking them. We know where they are. We know what they do. They're not anymore active operational officers. I mean, one of them is doing training for others. Good luck with that. Uh, but the regular ones that had one job to travel around Rome, pretend to be tourists, kill people, blow up things, they've now been given boring desk jobs around the country outside of the military. Uh, the question is, what comes next? And I can't imagine that they will give this up. I mean, once they've weaponized the zero reputation cost of, of the Kremlin, they will continue using that because it's an investment. And they just don't have the people to, to do that immediately. I mean, this takes training, this takes years of training. From what we've seen, they're recruiting much younger people, about 10 years younger than these guys. But it will take three or four years before they can deploy them. So we have a good two or three years of no explosions in Europe, is my best guess. Well, I mean, but if, if you know the ages of the people that they're recruiting now, presumably you know who these people are, and therefore they can be preempted by being unmasked before they get up to no good, right? 
I hope you can cut this out of the podcast so we don't give up too sure. much. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm kidding. Sure. Yes, that's the answer. Right. Yes. Now, Christo, tell me there are 30 people involved, but there are some main players that we should discuss, right? There's General Sergeyev, who you discovered was kind of leading the operation for the Skripal assassination attempt. And whilst Mishkin and Chapiga had gone to Salisbury, he was holed up in some flea bag hotel in Paddington, right? That was his sort of base of operation. Correct. Sergeyev, I believe, was also involved in the Bulgaria operation, right? Yes, in both of the poisonings there both. and the and the fire at the forensic center. Right. And who else, who, who sort of in your deck of cards, as it were, should we be um, very cognizant of in terms of their either commanders on, in the field or their, their masterminds of these, uh, you know, the, the who, what, where, and how of these operations? I mean, clearly these names are going to recur in international reporting as we find out more and more of what they've done. So who, who should we be looking out for? Well, I mean, we do know of Averyanov. That's uh, General Andrei Averyanov, who's the uh, nominal head of this unit. But he also, what we didn't know, we, we did know that he traveled a couple of times under fake identity. Yeah. But with the Czech disclosures, we realized actually he was there for an effective sabotage operation on his own. That just speaks to the value of that operation to the Kremlin, because it's so unusual to send the general undercover. Yeah. Let alone a general that has about 300 people under his supervision, because he's not the head of this surreptitious unit within unit 29155. He's the head of the whole unit, which is about 290 people doing different special operations, not just these covert things. So it is a very high risk to expose this person to capture, to arrest, because he has no diplomatic cover. If he's arrested, he's arrested. That means they needed somebody of his caliber to supervise the operation. That's a very important find. Which leads us to question what else was happening in the Netherlands, where he went yeah. in 2014, and in Greece, where he went in 2013. So these are the next things we are looking at. Another name that we've kind of kept under wraps until the last reporting was um, Colonel Terentiev, Ivan Terentiev, who traveled under the fake identity Lebedev. And he's the aide to uh, Averyanov, or was, because now he's given a government job now that he can't travel or, or let's say a civilian government job. Yeah. But but he was the deputy and he was even on top of the um, supervising General Sergeyev's job. Because, by the way, Sergeyev became a general in 2017. Before that, he was a colonel as well. These are the two new names, or at least one new name, that um, I expect us to find much more involvement. Terentiev has three awards for special operations that were all overseas, mm. three medals of uh, valiance or orders of valiance, and one hero of Russia. And the hero of Russia, we can link to the to the actual explosion operations in the Czech Republic of Bulgaria. And I mean, as you say, you know, if, if this unit was a kind of proof of concept, then the powers that be, I mean, President Putin will have said, you know, good job, boys, even though you got caught, you, you, you still created enough mayhem, you still disrupted European efforts to fortify Ukraine's defenses. That's why they got these state awards. So it stands to reason that there are other units being formulated as we speak for future deployment. I mean, it, you know, it, for instance, like with the, the Wagner group, it didn't stop there. There have been other PMCs since, exactly. um, but that was sort of the test case, right? So, I mean, absolutely. from, a, from a, a, an international security point of view, Christo, I mean, you've got, you know, a, a badly divided European Union with respect to what to do about Russia writ large, everything from Nord Stream 2 to should we sanction preemptively to save Navalny's life. But now we have clear cut evidence, even from governments that tend to be a bit 
shall we say, squishy when it comes to Russian interference in their sovereign territory, expelling, quote unquote, diplomats, but really, you know, undercover intelligence officers. Can we now affirm that Russia is certainly behaving like a terrorist state and committing, forget violations of the Vienna Convention, which I know the Bulgarians raised in their kind of shouting match with Moscow. What needs to be done to contain this? What needs to be done at the international security level to ensure that, you know, I mean, these are not just Russian spies. These are Russian murderers. You tell me. I mean, they, they certainly behave like terrorists, blowing up buildings, uh, trying to kill people. Can you find another legal um, qualification for this? I mean, there's no other legal qualification than terrorism, simply because there hasn't been a declared war by Russia on any of these countries. Therefore, it can't be treated as a well, uh, act of war where this might have been even permitted under international jurisdiction. This is pure terrorism. I think there are some low-hanging fruits that should have been implemented. We've been yelling about them for years, which is introduce mandatory biometric visas for Russian citizens. Why is it that my friend, a journalist from Russia, every time gets a biometric uh, passport and a biometric visa, but spies are allowed to get non-biometric passports and travel under multiple identities? I mean, it's as simple as a decision, nothing more than that. It doesn't cost anything, not in money, not in uh, sort of incremental hardship for, for Russians. Until something as basic as that is implemented, there's no point in talking about bigger, uh, more, more sort of uh, larger measures because they're not going to happen. Yeah. Well, Christo, it's it's always a pleasure uh, having you on. And I am sure we'll have you back because as we've been discussing for the last half hour, we only know a fraction of what this unit has got up to in the last 10 years or so. Uh, and no doubt there are going to be further disclosures. This is Michael Weiss for Foreign Office. My guest this week, Christo Grozev. Good. Apologies for the mispronunciation. (laughs) And uh, we will see you uh, shortly. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Bye.